Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Nick Hazel and Phil Wall, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Righto. I might just start with you, Phil. You're a part of Main Sequence Ventures, which is a VC company. I mean, are you a founder of that or an investor? I am, or, yeah. Yep. Founding partner. Founding partner of um, Main Sequence Ventures. And that, just tell us a little bit about that for a start. Let's yeah, kick so, it off. so Main Sequence is uh, what we call a deep tech venture capital firm. So everything we invest in has got science at the core. And we're really interested in funding things which are going to be part of the yeah, solving the problems that planet Earth has today. So decarbonization, new ways of making food, sustainable food systems, healthcare systems, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, we work with all the universities, we work with CSIRO. Um, and, you know, what we've what we've found over in the five years of the fund's life is that we need to go earlier and earlier into the process to help some of these companies grow because they're very, very complicated to, to, to make a new food company or make a new, uh, a new material that's more sustainable or to make a quantum computer. Um, it's very hard to imagine a, a founder doing that in a co-working center or as part of an accelerator program. So how do we, how do we get involved early and bring all the forces together? Uh, to actually start that company, and that's the com- you know the company that Nick and I started together is an example of that. Yeah, we'll talk about V two in a second. I am quite curious about main sequence ventures. It's not limited to food, though. It's it's no. uh, you mentioned quantum c- computing, which is a tricky one. Um, you know how much you invest in yeah. when you expect to get your return. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what are the sorts of areas that something like Main Sequence does invest in? Yeah, we have uh, the biggest telehealth platform in Australia, which is called CoView, uh, which actually does uh, treatment in a telehealth yep. environment. Uh, we have companies that use artificial intelligence to help diagnose disease. We have whole new uh, companies that look into people's eyes and they can diagnose all kinds of disease. But those machines, when you go and get your eyes tested and you sort of rest your chin on uh, something, yeah. but they, but the resolution that they can look at your eyes is incredible. And, and, the, and then you can diagnose all kinds of things from that. So a whole bunch of things in healthcare. But, you know, we also, we have a rocket company. We have satellites uh, up in space, people that, you know, do massive scale automation in factories and things like that. So um, all That's, kinds of things, very, very diverse range. And when you said earlier on, sound like social ventures, environmental-social ventures, yeah. that's around solving problems, 
one of which would be, I guess, is when it comes to V2, for example, is um, environmental issues as a result of, um, you know, what cattle can do, for example. Yep. Because, I mean, V2 is a vegan business or, like a, or it's, a, it's a plant-based food business which sort of makes fake meat, I guess, is a better way of putting it. I don't know how to put it. We'll, 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 talk, sure about it. we'll talk about that. I'm sure there's some yeah. power way of putting yeah. it, but like, yeah, you know, whatever the nice spin is, but like, you know, I mean, like it's it's an alternative, makes you feel like you're eating meat, but you're not eating meat or something along those lines. Okay. Um, you said earlier, you said that the earlier you get into these, the better. You've got to get into mm. these really early, like at the yep. inception stage. And that's why, is that the reason why you sort of, um, meander around university campuses and see where all these PhD right. students are doing their research yeah. work and post postdocs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, there you know, there are people and um we're talking about engineering you, you departments s- and Yeah, and you see the opportunities and you see the problems just by having conversations with people. And um uh and you know this is where yeah we saw the the opportunity of of V2 food is from working in CSIRO. So I, I wasn't that interested in food until I became a part of CSIRO. Well, how and, do you mean you're a part of CSIRO? Do you, do you guys have so, a partnership with CSIRO? So CSIRO was, if you like, the founding partner of Main Sequence. Okay, they're one of the partners. Okay, that's right. Right. And what I didn't know until I joined is that you know, food was the sort of founding stream of activity for CSIRO a hundred years ago, and it it sort of it was set up to answer the question of well, how are we going to feed everyone in this this place we call Australia? And you realise, you know, I'd, I'd taken food for granted all my life. I assumed I could just always I'll always be able to show up at a supermarket and buy whatever I want from wherever in the world and. I assumed it was all very sustainable because, of course, it is. It's sort of it's natural. It's food. You grow it. It's nature. Um, and uh, you know, the, the work at CSIRO helped me to see that there's a it's a fundamental part of the machinery of the world that um, causes problems as well as uh, creates opportunities. And yeah, that's where I saw that the 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 problem of of meat, if you like, uh, it was something that really had to be solved over the next ten years. We could see the price of meat going up. We could see it being more and more scarce, um, very sustainably produced. I mean, a cow as a um, as a machine for making food is actually incredibly inefficient. And the thesis that that led to V two food and in these conversations in the corridors of of CSIRO and at the, at the universities was that that really we can't say to the meat lovers of the world you need to eat eggplant now instead of that beautiful porterhouse steak that you were planning on having um, on the barbecue this weekend and and so the challenge is how do we how do we make that same stuff in in different ways and it's a good example of the the sort of framing question that we get to a lot in our in our fund it's if if we can't if we can't convince people to completely change their behavior but we want to give them something which sort of aligns with what they do already today but this version of it is is sustainable and it is something that can endure into the future yeah you know, what does that look like how might we do that and that you know that's a good question to start one of these companies obviously you're a fund when you go to pitch i guess what you your investors find that is interesting you give them the scientific angle 
that both both the CSIRO, which is you know our champion of science in this country, one of our champions of science in this country, but also that you are hovering around university campuses trying to f- talk to engineers or what, talking to all the latest developments in in the various parts of the university. Mm. So what's really important is you're sort of looking like you're making a marketplace, you're building a market yeah. um, of knowledge yeah. and research and then products and services and or services mm. that resolve problems. So yeah. you're like, and I'm, I'm not putting it down, but to make it very simple, you build a marketplace of these very complex environments for investors to invest in and then for products to be produced. Yeah, I think that is a, a good summary and, uh, you know, a, a build on that would be that that one of the problems I think we've had historically in Australia is we've been very siloed in our thinking. So what happens inside an R&D lab at a university is quite separate and quite invisible perhaps to what's happening in large enterprise in Australia. And which is quite different again from what's happening, you know, in the entrepreneurial centres of, of of Australia. And we see our job is to is to sort of smash down those walls somewhat and start to create conversations between all those groups. And if we take a food company as an example, food company that's got science at its core. Um, I had seen before main sequence a number of these companies struggle to get started because you have to be good at the science. So you you, know, you might have to be a you know a, a molecular scientist. You know you need that you need that skill. Uh, you need entrepreneurial skill. You need to understand packaging, supply chains. You know anyone that's tried to get a product on the shelves at Woolworths will know how incredibly difficult that is to do. Um, so there's so many dimensions. In Marketing, essence. branding, all of it. You know, it's incredible. So, so, you, so, so many of the companies start with a beautiful, valuable, probably scientific core, with lots of things which are missing all the way around it. And so, what we see our job is sort of bringing that together. In fact, I, I talk a lot about you know seeing my job more like a movie producer than a that a financier or a banker, because that's a tiny, that that's a moment in the whole relationship where you put some money in and help the whole thing sort of get started. But there's more to it. There's the, the, the you know, there's the talent, there's the supply chain, there's the marketing, there's branding, it's bringing all these things together into the full package. You guys just don't invest the money. You take a, a board seat or something along those lines and help direct the business as well. So you give a bench. Yeah, we're, we're a collaborator. And, and you know, one of the, one of the things we've learned is really important as well is 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 celebrating very much the whole concept of fat. Like what does it mean if you're a founder? It means more than being one of the people that was there on the first day. It means you have a commitment uh, to the project on one hand, which is much bigger than other people. Um, and also you understand that you can't possibly make this company without your co-founders. You understand that each person's come in for a reason and each person plays a role each person's accountable for delivering that role and you hold each other accountable um and a food company needs all those different skills we could never have made v2 without csiro we could never have made it without hungry jacks we could never have made it without our company building and and venture capital capability and we could never have made it without nick so we need to bring those whole things together and rely on each other as founders to to bring it all to life. Your business, as you say, saw a spark somewhere yep. at the CSR in relation to 
to resolving a, a problem. One of the very first things it seems as though you did is that you went and found yourself Nick. Yeah. You found yourself a CEO, a bloke to execute. Yeah. You can have a great plan, but it's got to be executed, right? Yeah. So I'm going to now turn to you, Nick. So, because I, I want to know what you think that Phil saw in you that was appropriate as a startup. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I mean, my title at V2 was, was you know, CEO, Chief Executive Officer, and we talk about my job was to execute, but that wasn't the job. The job at the beginning of a founder is is look at the problem, which is a you know an existential problem. Uh, how do we solve this this meat problem? You know, globally, and that is a creative process. It's not it's not okay. This is the solution. Go and execute. It's well, what is the solution that you propose? What's the technology behind it? The business model, the partners you do, your approach. How much money you're going to need? The whole the whole lot. And what Phil asked me to do in the in the early stage was at the time I was teaching innovation. I was a consultant to food multinationals, because that's my, my background, uh, was do a, do a bit of consulting to map out what's possible. And, and then after a couple of months of work, I presented back to Phil and to Jack Cowan and Hungry Jacks and CSIRO and said, this is what I think is possible. And by the way, I really want to do this. This is something that I think can be done in Australia. Um, and that was the beginning of V2. So to be, it started off with a conversation it piqued my interest um, around sustainability and obviously around the the, the food science space. Um, and my answer was that, yes, there absolutely is an opportunity and we have to do this and we can do this in Australia. And that was the beginning of, of, of V2 Food. Are you effectively taking Phil and the, the other founding partners, the, their thesis, and then backfilling, sort of doing the research and backfilling everything up and filling it, making it look like something, and did, did Phil say to you, okay, you got three months or did you say I need three months to put it together then I'll come back to you and tell you whether this is, this is what it looks like? This is basically the PhD? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I, I can remember there's a terrible sketch it's sitting on the, in the canteen, I think, in, in, in V2 of what the initial business plan was. And it was a, you know, uh, two or three months to figure out the technology to answer the question, can we do this? So technically, can we do this? And then it was another... Scientifically, you mean? Yeah, scientifically. Yeah, can we yeah. come up with a prototype that tastes really great and you can put it in, in a bun and no one can tell the difference with with a with a Whopper? That was yeah, essentially, yeah. we brought it down to that was the experiment that needed to be done. So that was your proxy. So That was a, that was the proxy because, and it was never about the Whopper. Yeah, yeah. It was about the, the bigger problem. But clearly, if you can solve it for a Whopper, you've pretty much cracked yeah. it for a, a lot of other things. So that was the experiment you know, and then go as as fast as you possibly can with the, the scientists who aren't used to going fast to yeah. get to that prototype. So you have something which people can believe in because no one's going to invest the big money. The, the venture guys will put in the, the, the initial seed money, but no one's going to invest big money until there's something tangible where people a, a can A proper it. prototype. A proper prototype and also the wherewithal to, to, to deliver it at scale. Like people were talking about this stuff all the time and I keep saying, you've got to have a prototype, but it's also been tested. It's not just focus grouped. No. Um, you know, like, do we need this thing? Like actually tested. Uh, can we, tested means can I produce it? Can I produce for the price? Uh, does it taste right? Does it look right? Uh, do, do consumers want it? As, as Phil was saying earlier, what's the supply chain look like? You know, can we actually manufacture at uh, at large, like and basically everywhere if we can? How do we do this? So at the end of three months, who do you deliver your 
research to and what does that look like? Is that like actual paper? Uh, well, it was more than that. I mean, three months, uh, we had some interesting prototypes that demonstrated some areas of technology. Um, but then six months, we were eating burgers in a restaurant, in a Hungry Jack's restaurant in, Darling, in Darlinghurst, just down, just down the road, um, and getting to a point where, well, a little bit later, people were saying, well, we can't tell the difference. One of the things that I brought to this and, and thinking about it was, look, there's no way that we're going to solve this big problem if you're going to produce stuff that doesn't taste good and is going to be more expensive than meat because why yeah, would you buy it? Yeah, you know, you just, <laughs> it's never yeah, going to work. Yeah, yeah. Food has got to taste good, number one, and you've got to be able to afford it. Yeah, so, yeah. so that means that your supply chain's got to be optimised. Now, meat is already optimised. It's been optimised over hundreds of years. So what V2 did was to say, right, we're not going to reinvent the supply chain. We're going to use the supply chain. And working with partners of Hungry Jacks, we actually, the, the, the stuff that we tasted in those early prototypes was actually made in the Whopper factories so that we could use those supply chains. And that was part of the, the You mean secret. their machinery? Yeah. So, yeah. so we designed it. Just different inputs. Designed it to almost intercept the meat industry and use the meat industry because they already have probably the most difficult food supply chain in the world. If, if you think about meat, you don't really think about meat, but it's short shelf life. Stuff's got I to do go I'm from- I do, I'm a farmer. Well, you've got, to get from, <laughs> you've got to get from factory to the supermarket yeah. within days yeah. because the shelf life of this stuff is is, yeah. is only 10 days. At least in Australia, it's like in places like India, it's a bit longer, but- like, <laughs> Well, that's right. You can- You don't you feel can, so well after it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it's it's actually the, the biggest, it's the most amazing supply chain yeah. in the world. There's yeah. Efficiency-wise, yeah. Efficiency yeah. and, but that means that you've got to, to, to do that from scratch would be impossible. You'd never be able to compete. So that was part of the problem to so, be solved. So are you saying though that you sourced your- uh, non-meat patties, um, you source them wherever you source them, but you somehow put them through the same supply chain that a, a actual beef beef would have gone through in order to make it to Hungry Jack's as a beef burger, yeah, as same, a beef patty. Yeah, ideally same same trucks yeah. and same, you know, and yeah. also the relationship with supermarkets, you're talking yep. to the buyers, et cetera. So what you're trying to do is, is intercept something which is already super efficient because to bootstrap that from scratch would take too long. It yeah. could take 10 years or 20 years and, and part of the mission that we'd identified is that we don't actually have a lot of time. You know, we, we don't want to solve this problem in 30 years time. We actually have to solve it in, in a few years time. And so, so part of the uh, thinking there was, was as much about supply chain and how does V2 make and deliver the product globally, as well as the technology behind, you know, how do you make a chewy um, uh, meat experience? How do you get the flavors right? How do you get the fat right? How do you get the color right? So there's a lot of science there. But equally important is thinking about uh, route to market and supply chain. You obviously have the funding to go out and um, employ food scientists, um, I presume. We're talking about food scientists. Well, or what was interesting about V2 is, is that um, actually the total R&D in V2, in the company itself, is actually quite small. But what V2 did that was different, and this is there's a whole sort of thinking now about how do we do sort of technical science, science, science-based venture, was how we worked with the universities. And so we worked with the scientists in CSIRO and then we worked with the scientists at UTS and the other universities and sort of reached in and worked with the scientists, um, but as an entrepreneur. So this isn't like, here's some money, come back in three years with, with a paper. No, it's like, we want to work with you, we will pay, but we want to work with you on the bench and I want to see what you're doing tomorrow and then the next day and be with you and interpret results in real time, which is a very different way of working both for CSIRO and for the universities. But um, after a, 
initial sort of uncomfortableness, because this is not really how universities work, they actually got to love it because mm. they could see impact from their research in, in real time. And that was kind of the way that V2 um, R&D worked. Quite a lot of money working with all of the universities to solve the technical problems that need to be solved in, in real time. So we're talking about getting the patty to taste, look, smell, and be priced at the right price, like meat, like normal meat. Mm. Um, but why would they do it? What's in it for the universities? Did you give them grants, scholarships, or what are we talking about here? I mean, why would the university do that for you? Well, they can say, what's in it for me? Everyone's driven by, uh, in our experience at least, by generating impact. Like something, something valuable should happen on the other side of some activity. Um, and I think what the universities are enjoying about this kind of work is that you you get to that very quickly. You also attract a whole bunch of new funding, which has never been available, uh, certainly in Australia until recently, from the private sector, from venture capital, from big companies. Um, and I think that we're getting things done together at an unprecedented speed, at an unprecedented impact. And I think going back to your earlier question, um, you, you might think about what was the piece of paper that Nick delivered and how did, you know, how did all these people work together? You know, again, I'll bring it back to there were a number of founders working together, one of whom was the CSIRO, what we call the research founder. And so their, their job was to bring to bear whatever needed to be brought to bear to get this to happen very, very quickly through a series of sprints. So the first sprint was Nick, um, synthesizing the ideas, the opportunity, and sort of not only pitching it back to us, but actually deciding he wanted to do it. Like for me, the most powerful heuristic is a founder saying, I want to give my life to this now. Yeah, like I'm now actually, engaged. What, I'm engaged. I'm fully pregnant with this. That's right. I will risk my reputation. I'll risk my time. I will dedicate this period of my life to actually making this happen. And for me, that's much more than anything that's written on a piece of paper. That commitment is a, is a real, yeah, it's a real signal. Um, and we definitely did constrict that to three months. You know, it's not about thinking about it until you're really, 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 really sure. It's like, how do you, what do you need to know to get the conviction? And then if you think about the next stage, that was, that was only nine months. Um, but that's, that's taking a food company from thin air from from an idea to a safe product with a supply chain, you know, with the the taste uh, experience that we were looking for in a major Australian uh, uh, food service um, channel, and just doing it in a, in a just a crazy short time. And I think for me that comes back to founders. It's like how how do you have a driven founder like Nick that actually brings all this together? How do you have a research founder that doesn't say, here's how we do things properly over the next three years and, you know, you know, carefully and with, you know, avoiding all risk. And that, you know, how do we have hungry jacks that say, you know, I mean, th this nine month thing was driven by hungry jacks saying to us, well, if you would like to release it this year, here's the window. It has to go in October. If it doesn't go in October, you know, then our campaign for bubble tea <laughs> um, comes out and you're you're nudged out until next year. And so, you know, a series of burning platforms there, which are, you know, thrilling, but they get they get us to this point of 
impact uh, very, very quickly, which all founders um, are motivated by. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I don't know what you, I would call you a CEO, to be honest with you, at that period. Um, it's, I don't know what it is. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a normal CEO. It's a startup CEO. It's probably a better yeah. way of putting it. But even sort of pre-startup CEO and then a startup CEO because you went through two phases. How long has um, V2 been going for now? Uh, about five years. Five years, yeah. okay. So in the first two years, what changed, Nick, like in terms of your role? Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the, initially it was a bit like my old job as an R&D director and you're doing research but very, very quickly um, it's about forming a company that can actually deliver. So, you know, we we started to deliver to Hungry Jacks and we actually have to manage supply chain and lots of problems to make sure that we we delivered. And then we had an interesting event, which then happened, you know, after sort of a year in business. Just stop, was- sorry. Of course, we're going to have to have fire brigade all of a sudden. Oh. <laughs> sorry, we had an interesting event. Say that again. And then we had an interesting event, which was covid um, because our my business plan at the time, which was sort of a playbook, which was happening in the US with Impossible and, and beyond, was to go into restaurants and then get people used to this idea that you have plant based meat that actually tastes like meat, and and traditionally you do that in food service. That's 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 the conventional wisdom. Um, but of course, there was no food service. There was no restaurants. There was, COVID shut everything down, and so we had to pivot because we weren't. I mean, uh, giving up is not an option. You know, once you're on the mission, you have to deliver. So. How do we get into supermarkets? Because people are still buying meat, but they buy it in supermarkets. So, so we had to pivot and figure out how do we get this supply chain that was Hungry Jack's, Whopper's, food service into supermarkets, completely different supply chain. 
So that's what that's what we did. Uh, again, some technical solutions, different partners that that work with supermarkets, but similar sort of model. How do we intercept a supply chain to deliver meat to the to the consumer, um, but plant based? Um, and then suddenly we're an FMCG company. We're, yes. we're selling stuff in the supermarkets. We got a first deal with, I think it was was Coles was the first one. Well, first of all, we did some independence to just to seed it. To, the IGAs, to, et cetera. Yeah, to yeah. demonstrate to Coles and Woolies, hey, this is for real, yep. because obviously it's, it's a difficult process. Um, and then Coles and then Woolies. And then you're in FMCG territory. You've got to do marketing, brand marketing. You've got to get your your trade displays right. You've And, and then you've got to manage the supply chain in covid um, to supply uh, Coles and Woolies uh, and supply chain in the food industry was just going through complete hell everywhere because, you know, because there was no transportation. You know, it was just a, a terrible time to do a food business, but actually the best time I was say, to Bob, be a startup where yeah. everything is broken, everything is in crisis. And everything's up for negotiation. You can you can, you can can cut through. Well, mm. sometimes the shelves were empty yeah, of yeah. everything. And, yeah. and so, you know, there was a time when V2 was actually on the shelf and there wasn't any meat on the shelf. Uh, interesting uh, opportunity. So, so negotiating all that um, and then start planning uh, going to other countries and that's that's when the job sort of morphed from a technical how do we solve it technically into how do we build a business that could actually take on the existential problem which is meat supply to the world correct me if i'm wrong but it started off as a technological solution then it became a logistical solution so you had to understand you had to build logistics in other words become a fast, fast consumer supply chain fast yeah. moving and a marketing business, yeah. yeah it's a, it becomes the the whole deal and and something that begins to look more and more like the sort of the the food multinationals a normal business came, well but a multinational normal business one. yeah, yeah. Um, which are normal, which yeah. normally take sort of uh, you know sixty, seventy years to to, yeah, yeah. to build up. So how do you build a culture? How do you do that in in months, weeks, and months rather than decades? Can I ask you are both of you? Are you are you vegans or no? Do you eat the vegan meal as well as normal meat? Yeah, I mean. Uh, uh, from a personal perspective, uh, I love meat. Like, I, it's not that I you love no, the taste meat. Vi- I'm not vegan. I actually love meat, and nearly everything I cook has got a meat as a uh, as a sort of centerpiece. Yeah. Um, and so I know I'm never going to change. I'm never going to become a, a kind of vegan that eats you know out and out vegetables only. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, if I go to Hungry Jacks, I'll 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 get a V2 Whopper. That's and I prefer it. Yeah. Um, and the whole point about this thing is that right at the very start, uh, I went to a conference. Phil was there as well in in California to find out what is this alternative protein thing, you know, and we were in California and I was feeling uncomfortable. And one of the reasons I was uncomfortable was I realized I was in a room full of startup CEOs of alternative protein companies and I was the only non-vegan. And I was thinking, hmm. how, how come this has got defined as you're either vegan or a meat eater when the problem is sustainability? Yeah. And 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 so we sort of reframed it in B2C. It's, it's, we're not going to say, whilst the product is vegan, this is not about vegans versus carnivores. Yeah. This is how do we feed ourselves with the food that we love to eat, which is meat. We're omnivores. Most humans like to eat meat. You know, we, we love it. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. But in a way that's consistent with the planetary boundaries, because we know that we cannot increase our meat, our animal meat um, production. There's no land left on the planet to do that. So... So that was the a big aha, and V two has been really careful not to 
be sort of vegan zealots. We're, yeah. we're for everybody. Um, and we're for for a, a carnivore that loves the taste of meat or somebody is just worried a little bit about sustainability or maybe they've got a, a friend who they're cooking for. They don't want to cook three meals or two meals. Just do what they were doing before. Spag bowl. You know, I, I used to, I did dolmio when I was at Master Food. So spaghetti bolognese with a jar of dolmio and a pack of mints. Well, just use V2 mints. And the rest just works. You don't have to learn how to cook again. Well, what, what's it made of? The, the main protein is soy. So you soy. take soy yep. soy protein and then you look at meat and you realise that when you've got meat and you cook it, uh, it's got a texture. There's, there's chewy bits yep. and there's gristly bits. Well, how do you reproduce that texture? And then how do you make it cook in exactly the same way so that you don't have to relearn to cook? So how do those proteins change and denature when you cook it? What happens to the colour? And then you think about flavor and aroma. When you when you put mince in the pan, there's a sizzle and then there's an aroma that's released. It wasn't there in the meat. There's, there's very little flavor in raw meat, but as soon as you cook it. So all of that is chemistry. Yep. It happens when you, you know, there's, there's thousands of chemicals in, in animal meat. Um, you just label it meat, but there's thousands of, 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 of chemicals in there and they all react when you cook it. So how do you reproduce some of that chemistry? Um, and so all of those are technical problems to be solved uh, and do it with plant-based ingredients like like soy for the protein, uh, coconut for the, for the fat, um, and then the sort of the protein, the amino acids, if you like, for for the flavor systems. So and you bring of, it all together, and that's that's V two V two meat. Are we talking about the same levels of protein? Yeah. Like, so we get the same protein intake. It's and it's designed that way. So right. one of the first projects we did with Syro was we asked the nutrition uh, experts there, what should it be? Right. So and that's a question about nutrition. You know, if you've yep. got meat on your plate, it's giving you a, a nutritional advantage. So that's Why the reason I eat it. That's the end reason I eat it. Yeah, for, for the nutritional reason. Yeah, that's right. And 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 meat has a very important role. And so we asked Syra, what should V two be to make sure that it, it there's no negatives and there's actually positives. So that's things like does it have the the same amount of protein? Is the protein digestible? Does it have the same levels of iron and zinc and B twelve? Because those are the things yep. that you get from your meat. There's other nutritional things you could put in there, but but in Australia, you don't need to because you get them from elsewhere. So that was the job to be done. And then the other experiment we did or the other piece of work was, well, what else could we do given that we're plant-based? And the nice thing about plant-based meat is that you can also put the fiber in there that's naturally in plants. And as you know, because you're interested in nutrition, the, the big thing we lack in Australia, you know, we, we don't lack meat. We, we eat plenty of meat. Uh, we're champions at eating meat. But what we do lack is fiber. We're not feeding our microbiome. We don't eat enough fruit and veg. You know, there's no point in, we don't, we don't even eat three portions of fruit and veg a, a day, let alone the seven that we're supposed to be eating. So V2 is a way of, 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 of giving you the fiber as well. So it's, we designed the food, so we might as well design it to be nutritious as well. Your patties are actually probably... Um, I don't want to make this judgment, but um, probably more healthy than a piece of steak. In, in some you, ways, yeah, yeah, you can you can you can reduce saturated fat, for example. So you don't yep. need to put as much saturated fat in there. So in that sense, they're they're better, and you can and you can put fiber in there, which is if you're having steak and chips, the one thing you're missing is fiber. Is fiber. Yeah, and so you, uh, that's fascinating. So you've got this product, Hungry Jacks is selling the uh, veggie burger. What do they call it? V2 Burger. It's V2 Whopper. V2 the, Whopper. The, the name's changed a few times. I think they started with Rebel Whopper. I think it's V2 Whopper. I think it's Whopper. still Rebel, oh, Rebel, Rebel Whopper. Whopper? Yeah. See, so you've yeah. got, your, you got your distribution. You're on the shelves, so you've got that distribution going. Um, you've got your science. Obviously, your science probably evolves. It'll be probably change the taste from time to time. You bring in little, little refinements going through. Yeah. What do you, and I might ask you this, mm. Phil, what do you as a 
funding partner consider a success and where did you where, where was success at what point three years five years now we're, we're talking mm. about yeah i mean i think there's lots of different ways of cutting it um uh when we sat down and founded the company we had very big shared ambition you know which is what we do in in venture capital but uh when we sat down with nick um and the other founders yeah, the the objective was to build a new category of meat, you know, a new sustainable manufacturing supply chain for a, a, a mainstream kind of food. So we didn't want to make a, a kind of uh, a vegan SKU on the supermarket shelves. We wanted to make something that sits there next to lamb and pork and beef and chicken. Um, and that's who we saw as our competitors, not other vegan products. And we wanted to, we wanted people to choose our products based on that that way of thinking. Um, so I think looking at the company today, for example, uh, we're very proud of it. It's, it's by some large margin the category leader. Um, it's in, in, all, in Australia. In or Australia. So you're a category leader um, in terms of alternative. That's meat. right, and and I think that's that's a good sort of differentiation there to make. It's. It's it's in what is essentially a vegan category today, which is smaller than our ambition mutually actually has. So the job now is to really um, develop the category, um, and I think that's something that V two has always been committed to. But it's a non-trivial task to work with supermarkets, for example, and to sort of create this whole new food that people will choose to buy for one reason or another. Um, and that's, you know, if, you know, if we're honest, that's taking longer than we would. It's absolutely happening. Um, uh, but it's, it's going to take, you know, decades, I think, ultimately for people to change what they, bu- what they buy habitually. You know, we buy what our mum and dad's cooked for us when we grew up, don't we? we that so sort of really defines the habit. That's right. Um, so we need to give ourselves the time for the category to develop, and that's where our ambition lies. You know, that's 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 the end game. That or that's that's the that's the uh, the game that will never end to actually to 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 create this whole new category of food. Um, but you know, it's going it's going well so far. We've just got a lot more to do. So, then Nick, why did you resign? Um. Or, well, did, or did you give him the, give him the boot, Phil? It was a, <laughs> it was it was a time. A, it was a conversation. We, it, it was a conversation. Yeah. Um, we we were, we're I, I don't know if this metaphor means anything to you, but we were we were describing it together this morning, being like a a quantum state. In that you know, when you're sort of looking at a quantum state, it's sort of it's you know the cat is alive and dead at the same time, and it only becomes one when you actually measure. Well, I think that was it. You know, we we. The company was going through, you know, its recent set of challenges that all companies go through. Um, there were lots of conversations between Nick and certainly myself and other directors in the company about what we need. Um, and I think we were always future-proofing the business. I mean, Nick has led the process of building a brilliant team that runs the company fantastically. Um, but what are the needs of a CEO over time as a company kind of morphs into what it needs to become? 
And there was some conversation about that, about whether uh, Nick was enjoying it, whether Nick was the right person to do what the company needed to do next. Um, you're probably aware that the financial markets are quite different this year to what they were. 2023, sort of very tough. That's right. Um, so the company's really, you know, walking into a whole new world. It's got whole new challenges. It's very much an FMCG company, as as Nick was saying a little bit earlier. And um, and the question is, um, is uh, a fire starter the person to run that company? And that's the conversation I think we had very openly at the time. Is, yeah. is it also like a matter of, I mean, I, this happens in startups I've been involved in, which turn into businesses, but they evolve and, and also people get a bit tired too. I mean, do you, I mean, like it gets to a point where I, I've done five years or whatever the number of time is and uh, it's now ready to hand the reins over to somebody else or is it because it's evolved into something that maybe doesn't excite you as much? And they're, and they're all fair income conversations. There's nothing mm. wrong with it, the answer. Mm. If the answer to that is yes, it's fine. But like, I mean, I've had those conversations with people. Sometimes I've had to move people on. Mm. Because the conversation was uncomfortable, and but they didn't want to leave. They didn't see how it was going because the company had actually outgrown them. Mm. That's a different conversation. Yeah. You're saying that it was just time. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I have huge loyalty to the people in V2 um, who I recruited and brought them in. Um, huge loyalty to the mission. So the mission, you know, is so important. You know, these these things around you know renewable energy and sustainability and food for for the planet that that, that is that, that that is sustainable is is my passion you can't ever let go of that so on the one hand you've got the responsibility because you want to do your best to make it happen and that drove me for for four years the other is the recognition that i'm i am actually a fire starter i've all of my life it's about creating new ideas creating new products new technologies and the bit that really makes me dance around the office is when we have a technical breakthrough or we've we've solved something that hasn't been solved before. And that's the bit that I love. Um, and so there was actually a, quite a lot of tension and I was, you know, Phil saw it. I was, I, I knew what needs to be done and I felt responsible for doing it. The bit that gave me joy, I was doing less of because we'd solved a lot of the technical problems and that wasn't the, the job to be done. Um, but on the, on the other, on the same front, I didn't want to abandon the people or abandon the mission. So those were the nature of the conversations that we were having. I, I always knew I was not going to be long-term CEO of V2 into the next decade because that's not me. And then the question is, is when? Um, and that was, that was a difficult conversation and we had a difficult conversation because I don't know whether as a CEO, even though I'm quite reflective and I'm thinking all the time, am I, am I the problem? Am I in the way? I don't think you ever really see it. You need someone from outside to say, you know what, Nick, now's the time to, to move out the way your job's done. And that was a call that, that Phil made. CEOs can fall in love with what they create. Founders, now founding CEOs or founders, you're more a founder than a CEO, let's call it that for for a moment, can fall in love with what they created. They feel they have these emotions of loyalty to everybody. They feel like then if they leave, there's a sense of abandonment. By the way, when they do leave, there's a sense of loss. What the hell? (laughs) I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got somewhere to go to. It's like I used to go there every day and your behaviour is your your, your own um, neurological behaviour is that that's what I do, your behaviour habits neurologically. There's a big loss, a feeling of loss. Um, I actually went through it myself many years ago and I got sick after. When I left, I actually got sick. I got quite ill, um, I, I, which stopped me working for three months. 
and I never got sick, but uh, it was because I left a business that I'd been involved in forever um, and I didn't realise there was a deta- uh, I wasn't detached enough mm. um, f- during the process. Um, but it's a very interesting period. You have to be the most important thing for the founding CEO is his honesty about himself. You have to be really honest. And uh, then the funding CEO, the more detached mm. person who's looking from the outside, so to speak, um, he has to be um, really honest with you, and mm. especially when you're mates, when yeah. you when you have a relationship, mate, mate, matey relationship type of thing. Um, it's very tough. How did well, you, you feel? Well, you, I mean, you have a bond, don't you? And if we go back, which is why it that, works. Yeah, that's right. And if we go back to that that moment, you know, we were talking about the sprints earlier, and the moment where Nick got the conviction to build this company. You know, you've you've done something physically and mentally at that point, haven't you? You've kind of committed to something. And that's what makes it very hard to see the moment in the future. You know, in our, in our conversations, you know, Nick had um, all those things that you're describing, you know, a sense of abandoning the mission, you know, feeling uncomfortable, you know, not as a fire starter, feeling himself getting dragged into a company which is now a big FMCG company doing things which he doesn't love. Um, but he committed, you know, he committed to the mission uh, on that day and he was not going to sort of let that go. And that that becomes a sort of diffusion field, doesn't it, that sort of gets in the way of things. And um, And I think the other aspect of that same thing is when it again at that moment where he was committed and we all decided to go with this company uh, there is nothing right so somebody and that that was his job has to you know conjure this whole thing to life has to talk about it to everybody until everyone can see the real company he gave it birth he gave it birth that's right and so that also makes it hard as the dynamic changes around the company and as the company needs other things it gets quite difficult to have the objectivity to say maybe that isn't what we should be doing right now um because it's been so well forged in your mind about what needs to be done next so that they were the nature of our conversations at the time but i think this is such an important conversation because you know in our world we you know we have more than 50 companies in our portfolio almost entirely they're led by founding CEOs. Some of those will absolutely become some of the best large company CEOs in the world, and that's what they'll realize they want to do. And some will need to go and do something else. And um, this that we're talking about in your personal experience as well, this is one of the very difficult, stigmatized, great unsaid conversations which are out there which I think are you know important things for founders to talk about and I think that's probably where we, we might live and I just want to finish off on this um perhaps you feel you could and, and also Nick you give us a view on this but should this conversation be had day one look Phil to Nick look mate um you're a fire starter or perhaps well that's what we need uh at some stage um, we're going to have to revisit this situation, and uh, because maybe it'll turn into something else, and we might have to part company. I mean, how, I think how would you I, approach that? Yeah, I think it's it's. Um, did you so, have the conversation day one? Uh, I think we did. Um, uh, I mean, Nick's always been very clear that he's a fire starter, but I think I think it gets that, that, that then the practical task of 
operationalizing that decision into the future is quite challenging. And the way we're thinking about that more and more in main sequence is, you know, job number one is to just make sure whoever the CEO is has everything they need. Well, whoever. the, The company, the CEO of the company has everything they need to do the best possible job. And so, and I think the day one conversation is, how do we do this together so that we're constantly assessing whether you have everything you need, uh, whether you're stepping into the whole new world of challenges, which the company's maturity is now bringing towards it, and then assess whether or not, okay, we've just made it to the next ring or whether we need to start looking at the, the you know, some new people coming in and how can that be a more objective, measurable, you know, for the company kind of conversation than what actually usually happens, which is where it becomes some kind of a judgment or guilt too late in the game, guilt, yeah, which isn't really helpful for anybody. So, yeah. so maybe Nick, would could you just uh, reflect on that? Because you know, day one is that a is that a good conversation? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, to be honest, I think on day one uh, f- feels very kind to say they were waiting for me to say that I believed it and had conviction and therefore the company was 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 on its way. I also needed feedback to for me to know that I could be the leader because my background isn't as a CEO, it's as an R&D director for big companies. And I've always avoided the general manager or the CEO job. So actually, we've been having conversations about that right from the very start. And in the back of my mind, I always knew I wasn't going to be it for, the, for, for 10 years. And, and at some point, the company would stand on its feet. We'd, we'd have an R&D director and a CEO and an operating officer and a marketing person. And I wouldn't actually need to be there because, so I knew that that was going to happen, but even then it was still a difficult conversation. And I don't think there is any way that it can't ever be a difficult conversation. So you talk about a sense of loss. Yes, there is a sense of loss, but I am getting energized about all of the other ideas that that have been bubbling away as a fire starter you never only have one idea you've got 50 ideas that are bubbling away about what the next opportunity is so i i'm i haven't fallen sick like you did i'm now kind of just getting my head around okay let's not spend all of my life thinking about v2 let's think about what the other opportunities are so i'm so i'm now optimistic but yeah First you, couple of months were pretty tough. We also got got good uh, funders, venture capitalists sitting over here. If you got well, a good they're idea, they're kind of interested exactly. in the next yeah. idea yeah. as well. Yeah. So no doubt they'd, they'd be yeah. there. To, they're definitely going to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks very much. That was awesome. Um, and it's so good to see an Australian company doing so well in this complex space. But I think what's the part I really love about it is that um, you guys are sort of um, leaning into universities and leaning into, you know, the STEM people and male and female, but leaning into the STEM parts of universities and leaning into the CSIRO and sort of leveraging it as well at the same time to give us a good, great outcome in Australia. So uh, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. And V2, go buy your veggie burgers, guys, and uh, get off to Hungry Jacks and uh, get the what, veggie whopper, what do they call it? The V2 whopper. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try it. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.